Good morning, everyone. If you would, please turn with me to Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2. We will continue through this book of the Bible. The Lord has truly blessed us through this book. It is truly a privilege for us to see how deeply God loves The Lord made 17 promises to the people of Israel in this text. The question we ask is why? What is the reason behind these promises? So to find our answer, we'll have to go a little bit past verse 14 and go up to verse 13. And the text there says that the Israelites burned offerings to the bells and adorned herself her with ring with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot the Lord. So if you were in a marriage and I've posed this kind of question before, you were in a marriage and your spouse promised to remain faithful to you, but decided one day to offer themselves to another person outside of the marriage, what would you do? What if afterwards they decided to make themselves more attractive than they were with you, putting on the fancy dressings such as jewelry to chase after their lovers How would you respond? Your spouse is putting on clothes and all of the dressings and is about to leave you to be with someone else. Follow along with me in today's passage in Hosea as I read from Hosea. We're going to begin at verse 14. Verse 14, I want to read through to the end of the chapter. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out the land of Egypt. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped down. Uh, Verse 16, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband And no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things, and the ground. And I will abolish the bow the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Let us pray, look to our God for help. Our Lord and our God, we, we give you 
praise, honor, and glory. We give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your comforting word. Your word is able to speak to our circumstances, able to speak to wherever we are in life. Your word is effective. And when your word goes forth, it won't return to you void. We just pray, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you would allow your word to go deep in us and bring about change, change in our hearts, our minds, and in our actions. And Lord, we pray that when we leave here, we will represent you well. We pray that in that representation, you would get the glory, the honor, and the praise. Lord, have your way now. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. I've in, in turn, I've entitled the sermon, Scandalous Mercy. According to the text, the nation of Israel continuously practice spiritual prostitution. Because of this ongoing practice, the Lord promised to punish Israel. However, after the Lord would punish Israel for all those times she'd burned incense to the bells, all those times she's put on earrings and jewels, seeking out her images of Baal, and when she had forgotten the Lord. He reveals a shocking response to all of Israel's infidelity. Shockingly, he pursues her more and more. He doesn't back away because of the sin and the idolatry. Rather, God pursues. He wants more relationship, wants to be close to his people. You can see why this is a scandalous mercy. We're able to conclude this by the text connecting verse 13 to verse 14 throughout 23. The Israelite people had forgotten their first love. She enjoyed the gifts, the provision God gave, the benefits of being in covenant relationship with God. Consequently, they did not know God in ways they should. They were not behaving like children of God, and they neglected their obligation to the Lord as his people. It's like a husband is saying, this is my wife. We've joined in a covenant relationship, and God have gifted her to me. She's mine. So I'd like for us uh, to consider that though they neglected their obligation to the Lord and his people, I want you to consider three points. The God who pursues wayward people, the God who restores disloyal rebels, and the God who provides hope and reconciliation for his people. So let's begin. The God who pursues wayward people. These verses helps us to learn about the nature of God. But it, is first, it first takes us to a place very familiar to the Israelite people, the wilderness. Many of us have been in a wilderness-like experience where we've experienced dry places in our spiritual walk with the Lord. A wilderness is a lifeless place. It's the place where the Israelites scurried around lost for 40 years because they would not turn to the Lord. 
One thing we ought to notice here is that the Lord is a merciful God. He pursues and extends mercy to his covenant people. His mercy never runs out. He's patient with his people. Yes, they rebelled, but God is a loving, merciful, kind God. Listen again to the text. Therefore, behold, I will allure you and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Now, this is the same people who had forgotten the Lord, who had worshipped Baals. And there he says in verse 15, and there I will give her her vineyards. In other words, I will bless her. And isn't it strange that he says, I'm going to bless her in the wilderness, in the dry place. I'm going to provide for her. And make the valley of Achor. You remember the valley of Achor Achor was the same place when Joshua was was losing the battle and was trying to figure out why they was beginning to lose. They had just defeated Jericho and now they were losing the battle and now they were in the valley of Achor and the reason why they was losing because God had commanded to keep no spoils and someone kept spoils for themselves and because of that, the Lord allowed the enemies to overtake them for a season so that they might turn to him. And when they found this person, they brought them out, they killed him and his family. And that became the Valley of Achor, which is also named the Valley of Trouble. But here it is, God says that he's going to make the Valley of Achor a door of hope. And he says, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth. It's like God is saying, remember, remember that time when we were all together and the family is around and they're telling the story and the kids is like, yeah, yeah, I remember that, daddy, I remember that. Yeah, tell, tell the story again. And he points them to a time that was the most difficult time in their lives. They were in bondage in Egypt. But then there was a moment when they were coming out. They were coming out of the land of Egypt. Think about how they were feeling at that time. In bondage. And now they were set free. And so he reminds them of of this moment. Israel, like us and all of mankind, was a people constantly struggling with sin, committing, committing idolatry. They sinned daily. They often rebelled against God. They were continuously disloyal. How would you feel if someone treated you in that way? Just continue to be disloyal, continue to be flippant and disrespectful? How would you respond to those who mistreated you? Maybe a young person, they they kicked on you all the time or they made fun of your hair or your clothes or something like that. How would that make you feel? The point is, uh, we probably won't be feeling like verse 14 says, if someone mistreated us. Most often, uh, it would be nothing like verse 14. Though the Israelites mistreated God, who deserves all respect, his response to their disloyalty and rebellion was to persistently love them. To constantly love them. God took the initiative to desire relationship with them and extend mercy at the same time. This is how God responds to his people. 
We've been disloyal. We've sinned daily, but God continues to be loyal to us. We continuously rebel, and we make idols and admire them before expressing adoration to the Lord our God. But what does God do? How does he respond? He loves us. God courted us. God wooed us. He pursued us to draw us back to himself. He doesn't do like we do, push people away because they've offended us. You see? This is the differences, and that's why we need the spirit of the living God to help us to do things that is beyond us, these divine-like things, these godly characteristics. You see our necessity, our need for God. And so the mercy of God is seen in the cross of Christ. God's mercy has no limits or no bounds. He is able to reach beyond the Jewish people to the Gentiles. God, in his divine wisdom, out of love, chose to extend and exercise mercy whenever and wherever it pleases him. God offers mercies to all who seek him and who look to him to be saved. Micah 7, 18, and 20, 18 through 20 says it like this. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Have you ever started your prayer life Uh, Your prayer time off like that. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. You see, we're fleshing out the nature and character of God. We're reminding ourselves of how good God is. So Micah continues, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Listen again to the same kind of language in Deuteronomy 4.31. The text says, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he sworn to them. God is merciful. God is available. He won't leave you like others have in the past. He's reliable. He's not destructive like mere men. He's not forgetful. He's concerned about you. He's a promise-keeping God. The text also reveals uh, that that the Lord God is an everlasting God. In other words, he has no time restraints. He's not like We are in a conversation with somebody facing this way, but turning this way, getting ready to leave. Yeah, yeah. Right? But God is listening to us. He's available. He's constantly aware of all that we're going through. God is a loving God. He endures forever. His gifts are eternal. God speaks an eternal word. His covenant is an everlasting covenant, and his kingdom is forevermore. He offers and gives eternal life. He gives eternal salvation. He gives eternal joy. And lastly, he gives eternal possessions and he keeps promises to those who are his. Our God transcends our limitation, every limitation in every generation 
for our God, help me, endures how long? Forever. Come on, you can talk with me. <laughs> for forever. So, however, according to verse 15, we can conclude that the people hopelessly and miserably live their lives without the God we just described. These Israelites are a hopeless people without God, and guess what? We are too. Without God, they can't succeed in anything, and we can't either. At one time, we were unsaved sinners. We were at one time without God, roaming the world, rebelling against him, but God had compassion on us. So where were you when God saved you? What did God use to draw you to himself? Do you remember that day? What did he take from you? What did he take you out of as he drew you to the blessed cross that our Savior bore and shed his blood on it? So that you and I might come and bow to him, our Savior. That beloved cross that he took upon himself, that we sinners might be set free from the bondage of sin. We ought to reflect upon that often. We can always find ourselves in a good place when we reflect upon the salvation of God. And so, until God stepped in, we were in trouble. Until God stepped in, the Israelites were a people without hope. They were enslaved to the Egyptians in Egypt, but the Lord, their God, brought them out. He saved them. It was not because they were wise or intelligent. It was not because they knew somebody, you know how people say, it's all in who you know, right? We hear that people say that all the time. Uh, It was not because of their might or strength or power or muscles. Instead, it was by God's mercy that they were set free from the bondage of slavery. But you know what is true of us too? We were at times in our lives enslaved to worshiping our own idols, We were in bondage. We were captivated, chained, and shackled to idols of all sorts, all kinds, all flavors. We were enslaved to lust, power, control, success, money, fame, self-centeredness, pride, arrogance, all kinds of pleasures. But God was merciful to us And he saved us. Now here's the reality. That's scandalous. For him to do that. We could even say that that's almost unbelievable. It's it's a strange kind of thing. One author states... When, when we place, and I quote, when we place our trust in idols, we find that they cannot satisfy our desires or sustain our hopes. So, we look for even more. The multiplication of gods in Greek mythology or Hinduism depicts what goes on in our hearts every day, unquote. That's the struggle. The heart is indeed, he continues, an idol factory, unquote. You see, only Christ can fulfill our needs and give us the greatest hope. Look to the Savior Today, if you don't know him, look to him today and be saved. For he, he's the only one to, that can truly satisfy you. 
Only Christ can fulfill our needs. This is vastly different from what's being taught in the world of academia. Partain describes it in this way, and I quote, the psychological community offers inadequate explanations. Ultimately, they distort the very problem they describe because they fail to examine the motivations of the heart or to offer the hope found in Christ, unquote. Our problem with sin is not an issue necessarily with our hands, but the problem is the inside man. It's the heart. It's the issues within. For out of the heart flows the issues of life. And so we we must deal with the problem where they are. Are. We can't deal with the outside things, the effects of why we are having certain kinds of responses. Uh, we, we can't deal with those things that are not the etern- internal problem. But we must deal with the inside. And so... What's your motivation that's driving you? Um, Why do you serve? Why do you do what you do? What's behind the reason why you're doing what you're doing? Who do you serve? Why do you serve? That's a question. Those are some questions. We ought to ask ourselves to make sure that our motivation is right. If, if it's not Christ or grounded on scripture, you are motivated by your own personal idol. And so it's time for a checkup. But begin with the heart. Test yourselves. The difficulties we have with sin begins with our heart. The words of Edward T. Welch reigns true about us. He states, and I quote, people are indeed complex. You know, people say that all the time. Well, you don't, you don't understand. You just don't understand me. I'm not like everybody else. So he begins, people are indeed complex. But he says, beneath the surface of life is the heart. That is always on the move looking for objects in which to trust, unquote. Rather than going to the the creator, the one who has given us salvation, the one who provides for us, we have a tendency to look out for other objects of worship. For other objects of satisfaction to fill us and to make us full, rather than looking to the one who is full, the one who is the fountainhead of all that we need, the fountainhead of all life, God, the reliable one, the trustworthy one, the faithful one. So what are you trusting in more than God? What's your object? Sometimes we have to step back and look around. Am I I, I pursuing something that, that I'm putting before God? Am I putting a little bit more on this person rather than God? What's the object? Who's the object of our lives? It's the question we want to ask. The the Israelites had an object, 
And their object that they were trusting in was Baal. They believed that Baal would give them their vineyards. They would give them their fields. They would give them their crops. And so they went and did something for Baal so that they can get something in return. And so their object was Baal. And so the question is to us, do we have something that we're pursuing in order that we might get something in return? But the beauty of it is, is that God is not done with her yet. And God is not done with us yet. He still wants relationship with Israel and he still wants relationship with us. According to verses 14 and 15, God continues pursuing this way with people to win back Israel's affection. God took the lead in getting his people back. So he chose to love Israel through merciful deeds of deliverance, despite what they've done in the past. These people do not deserve to be loved by God. They committed grotesque sins, but God knew he could woo his people back. God readily desires to take away Israel's shame, misery, trouble, so that he might transform them from the valley of Achor to the valley of hope. That leads us to the next point, the God who restores disloyal people. In these verses, verses 16 and 17, in these verses, the Lord intends to remove every form of idolatry from the Israelites. Listen to verse 16 and 17. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Now, it's interesting here in the text. I've read and I saw that the original translate this word, my husband, right, to mean that one is in relationship, a marital relationship. But, but my bell is translated as my man. And so one, Yahweh, is considered my husband. Baal is considered my man. And that's because Israel was going out of covenant relationship and worshiping idol gods. And so the Lord intends to remove, remove these names out the way and call me by my name, for I am your husband. God decrees that no longer will the names of bells be used in this house. You see, he, he ensures that this will never happen again. For I will remove the names of Baal. He says, I will remove them. From her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Yahweh planned to do away with every form of polytheism now that they've been weaned from the worship of Baal. The people were constantly committing sins against God through idolatry. And so now they must abandon any form of idol worship and look. To the Lord their God. And we should too. We should abandon anything that is taking us away from worshiping God, honoring God, loving God. The people needed to look to God. If there's anything causing them, anything causing us, To not represent God as we ought to, we must rid ourselves of those things. We must abandon all practices that lead 
to us not honoring God as we ought to. That means even the appearances of evil. Instead, we must cling to the Lord our God and worship him alone. In other words, everything we adore more than God must be cut off and buried. So what does this mean for us? Well, we have to ask some questions. What's causing you not to have relationship with God as you ought to? You can write that question down, answer it later. Or what about this? What's damaging your fellowship with God? Or what do you need to change? What do you need to do differently so that your fellowship with God might be sweeter than times before? You see, the problem is with our fellowship is never with God. It's always with us. And so we must look at our lives to see if there's anything, as the scripture says, we must get put away every weight and sin that so easily besets us. So beloved, our identity in Christ is made surer each day when we look deeper into ourselves to begin processes that lead to an acknowledgement of sin, confession of sin, and a repentance of sin. And then after this is done, there should be no mentioning, no room for any past idols. We must move on, keep progressing in the Lord, see sin for what it is, detestable and evil before a holy and righteous God. We can't afford to go backwards doing what we used to do, pleasing ourselves rather than God. We must remember that we don't belong to ourselves. We've been bought with the price through the blood of Christ. In other words, the Israelites called Baal my man, but now she calls Yahweh my husband. This means that the people of God are in relationship, but not any kind of relationship. Listen again to verse 18 when the Lord states in the text, I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the creeping things and the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. When these wayward, rebellious Israelites turned to the Lord and forsook their sin, the Lord planned to make for them a covenant. And this covenant would, would only lead to blessings. The Lord would bring them out of Egypt and bring them again into a land flowing with milk and honey. No one will be at war with them because they're under the Lord's divine protection. Satan understands that. That's why he had to get permission from God to be able to deal with Job. It was God who actually began the whole thing. He's roaming the earth looking to do trouble and the Lord say, you need some work? (laughs) Have you considered Job? My servant. And so here we see that the people, the Israelite people were going to be blessed because they were in covenant relationship with God. He says, I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow. You see, this I, I will, I will, I will. The Lord our God is able to restore 
then he initiates relationship with rebels. And so he provides and he saves. God is in is a is a sovereign God. But but for God to see his people treat him this way, what a scandalous mercy. In an ultimate sense, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who can offer true peace between God and man. Then the Lord doubles down in verse 19, stating to his beloved people, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. God's mercy is extended once again. He pursues his people like a husband pursuing his wife. Despite Israel's ongoing disobedience, God pledges his marital faithfulness to them. God is divinely committed to the relationship with his people and he's saying to them, Israel, I take you to be my wife. The same Israel who committed idolatry, he's saying, Israel, I love you. I want you to be my wife. Will you? Then he tells how he plans to keep it, to keep this this covenant. In verse 19 and 20, he pledged to keep his vow in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, in mercy, and in faithfulness. He then adds, and you shall know the Lord. God promises his people that they're going to be in an intimate relationship with him unlike never before, and you shall know the Lord. We can rest in the reality that we can't, but God will. He is faithful when we are not. We are weak, but he is strong. The Lord God is righteous. God by nature is righteous, meaning all of his actions All of his allowances, all of his decrees, all that he desires are perfectly righteous. His laws are righteous. His justice is just. His judgments are just. His righteous rule is perfect. In Isaiah 40, verse 28, the text The text says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So the fact that one would say, no one understands me is not true. God is able to go beyond our understanding. And he does that because of his love. The Lord is a loving God by nature. One of the most profound expressions of God's character is seen in how he loves. It's true In a general sense, God loves all people, but those who are called the children of God are special. They are those who experience God's love uniquely through the blood of Christ. 
On the other hand, the unbelieving world can never know this kind of love in this way until they've been born again, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. They will never know this kind of love. Next, the people of God are comforted in verses 21 through 23. When the Lord promises to care for his people through his, through his divine prevention, lastly, he briefly considers, or let us briefly consider, the God who provides hope and reconciliation for his people. The text says, and in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. The first thing we see is this. The Lord our God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over creation. But we also see that he's sovereign over salvation. As stated in verse 23, God is basically in control of everything. He emphasizes this in the text. In this text, in Psalm 102, verse 12, when the psalmist says, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. God is sovereign Overall, he provides and he saves. These Israelites can rest and be reassured, be reassured that God is faithful. So it's not dependent upon their ability. Just like salvation is not dependent upon our ability to save ourselves do good things, do good deeds, follow the law. We cannot follow it unto perfection. And so, therefore, we're wasting our times. But rather, we must look to Christ because only Christ can reverse the curse. We've been born into sin, born in iniquity, and the only hope for us to be saved is the Lord Jesus Christ, the merciful God. Yahweh, the one who saves, the Lord. In a broader and more significant sense, when the writer says, in that day, the day of the Lord is a future hope, an eternal hope that the Israelites can look forward to which came through the one and only, the Lord Jesus Christ. We too, as they look forward, we can look back to the reality that we have a Savior who saved us. If you're here today without Christ, you're in the valley of Achor. You're in trouble. You're desperately in trouble. I don't think you understand the gravity of your decision right now. You're in serious trouble. Why? Because if you were to die in your sins without a savior, you are destined for hell. You will go there. So you are in much danger of being eternally separated forever from God. But hear me as I plead with you. It doesn't have to be this way. It 
doesn't have to be this way. All of what I've said can change. All you have to do is accept what Christ has done on your behalf. And what is that? He died for your sins. His blood was shed to pay not for some, but for all of your sins, once and for all, from conception to the grave, he paid it all. He said, it is finished. So that means he paid for past, present, and future sins. He rose again from the grave to give you hope. For without Christ, you're in the valley of hopelessness. Come out of the sloth of despond. Receive Christ today. That's good news. I didn't know. I didn't ask you to do anything. I'm just asking you to believe. Place faith in Christ. Be saved. Here's the bad news. If you reject this offer, you will regret it for the rest of your life if you die. Death comes to us all, young and old. So don't think you you got a lot of life ahead of you, young people. Some young people's lives have been cut short, and you have a decision to make. We all do because tomorrow is not promised. All we have is right now because death will come to us all. If you happen to die in your sin and no one knows when they're going to die, you will end up in hell eternally separated from God, burning in an everlasting fire that will never, ever go out. But I was there. I was there too. I was opposed to God, in opposition against God. But one day he visited me, and I heard the gospel, and I responded, and God is good. And we just want you to experience the same good God. And so think about that as you go home. Think about making this decision that would affect you for the rest of your life. All of the other decisions were past. There's nothing like this one. God says, you're with me? Life. You're against me? Death. So, let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we give you thanks for your word. May you apply it to our hearts deeply that we might experience you the more in every aspect of life. Help us to to realize this scandalous mercy, this unbelievable mercy that you have granted us. Help us to remember how you have loved us and we've turned our backs. You have loved us and we've rejected your will and your word. Help us to remember the cross of Christ, our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.